Good morning. I'm Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be together this morning. Thank you for joining us in person, or if you're joining us on live, thank you for joining us as well. You know, as I was anticipating coming up here to give the sermon this morning, I realized that not everybody anticipates sermon time like I do, because God doesn't necessarily make every person the way he's made me, and we can thank God for that. Um, But, you know, for some of us, we actually, like, some of us have no problem sitting there and listening to a sermon, you know, 60, 90, 120 minutes long. Uh, (laughs) It took a while, folks, to get that. Um, Some of us do a better job of being able to pay attention to things when we're able to do other things with our hands. I was talking to a friend about this a little bit ago and saying, can we be encouraged that are there things that we can do during the sermon for some of us who would help us to pay attention, to engage with it more? I know, for example, my wife, when we're watching television shows, she likes to crochet and do things with her hands. It actually helps her to pay attention. My sons, they like to doodle while they're listening to me preach, and sometimes it actually is relevant to what I'm talking about. So that's great. So if there's things that you want to be able to do like that, I know we have some knitters in the congregation that you want to do in order to enhance your sermon time experience. I would encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you not to do something on a smartphone. I don't think that that helps. Uh, The other thing is, if you ever have questions, feel free to write down questions from the sermon. You can send them my way. You might get an answer. You might not get an answer that you like, but I might not even know what to say, and I'll pass it off to Pastor Reese, and then he can deal with it. So, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. And like um, like Graham just prayed, I pray that we would all go from here knowing how deeply loved by you we are. I pray, God, that you would help us uh, just right now to open our hearts to your spirit and our ears to your word and that we would be... uh, encouraged God to walk in your good way, following after Jesus. And I pray right now uh, just that the thoughts that I've put into this message this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, God. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, once when I was a little boy, I went to a department store with my mother And uh, she was taking a dreadfully long time doing something that I thought was terribly boring. She was looking at clothes for me or for one of my brothers. I I don't know which. But I was so bored that I decided I wanted to do something else. And so I wandered off to find something more interesting. And I happened to find myself in the toy aisle, right? Now, when I decided that I better make sure that my mother was where I left her, I discovered to my horror that she was no longer there. And then I did the only sensible thing that a child who finds himself lost should do. I panicked and I cried until a department store employee found me and brought me over to the customer service desk where they got onto the PA and they made an announcement. Would uh, Betty Heinrichs please make her way to the customer service desk to retrieve her lost child, Dave? Right? And I'm sure that that announcement came as a great relief to my mother. But this did not bring me relief. Not yet. 
See, consolation would not come until my mother showed up to rescue me. In the meantime, while I waited for her, I had many fears and questions swirling around my little brain. Did she leave the department store without me on purpose? Is that the punishment that little boys who wander away from their mothers deserve? Or maybe she forgot me and she drove all the way home. When would she remember? Would she ever remember her sweetest and most adorable son and return to the store and get me? Or am I now doomed to live out the rest of my days in this department store? Fortunately, my mom did not forget me. She remembered she had a son whom she loved. And though she was relieved to see me, she wasn't nearly as enthusiastic about having her name announced over the PA system as I thought she should be. Now, perhaps you can relate to the fear and the anxiety of a little boy hoping that you would be remembered. Fearing that you had been forgotten. Maybe you fear your children will no longer remember you as they grow up and move out and make a life of their own. Or perhaps the anxiety that you're feeling stems from waiting on a doctor's call for results from a test that you've recently undergone. Or you're, you're waiting for surgery to be scheduled and you've had to wait far longer than they told you you've had to wait for your call. And maybe now you're thinking, have I been forgotten? Or perhaps you're in a really hard season of life and you're trying to stay faithful to God and maybe it's even your obedience to Jesus that has put you in this difficult situation in the first place. And now you're wondering, is he ever going to show up and rescue me? Or am I ever going to know the peace or the relief and comfort that I long for? I think those are the same questions and feelings that Noah had when he was on the ark and the whole world was flooded. But Genesis 8 and 9, which we're going to look at this morning, tells us that he didn't need to fear and we don't have to give in to our worry or anxiety either. Though our circumstances may seem chaotic and the storm rages on far longer than we would like, God has not forgotten us. He has not abandoned us. We can trust. God will remember. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Genesis chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9. It begins. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth. And the waters receded, and now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky, and the waters receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And after 40 days, Noah opened a window that he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove to see if the waters had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove 
could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. And so it returned to Noah in the ark, and he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. And he waited seven more days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, then in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth, and he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth, and Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. Everything that moved on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number and multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the life on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Well, if you're just joining us as we've been going through this series in the book of Genesis, today's message focuses on the second half of a well-known story in the Bible about a man named Noah, whom God commands to build an ark or a boat and take on board a pair of every animal, male and female, to survive a cataclysmic flood that God has determined to bring upon the earth in order to wipe out every living thing. Last week, we saw how God didn't just decide to flood the world on a whim. Rather, things have continued to go badly ever since Adam and Eve, the first humans, opted for their independence by taking the forbidden fruit back in Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has continued to rebel against God and his designs and instructions for human flourishing, believing that we know better than the creator does and choosing to do life on our own terms rather than follow his. Evil and violence have snowballed, increasing year after year. Not only were people hurting one another, but Genesis 6 tells us that the human race had corrupted God's earth. They were destroying the creation that he made, that he loves. Finally, in 6.5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so in order to restrain humanity's evil and violence from spiraling even further out of control, God intervened. You see, he would not be a good or just God if he did nothing. He would only be considered good and just if he did something. And so this is why he brings the flood. God didn't delight in bringing the flood and destroying his creation. In Genesis 6.6, it says that the Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on the earth and that his heart was deeply troubled. God loves people. He loves all of his creation. He made it and cares for it. But his joy turned to sorrow when the wickedness of humans turned his good creation into a theater of violence. However, God's grief over the state of the world didn't blind him from the fact that there still was one individual who is still trying to live faithfully. Noah, Genesis 6, 8, and 9 says, found favor in the eyes of the Lord because Noah was righteous. We learned last week that 
Righteous means that Noah tried to live his life according to God's plans for human thriving. And that plan requires maintaining harmony in four relationships. Being in a right relationship with others, with ourselves, with creation, and with the creator. Genesis 6 says that Noah walked faithfully with God, describing his faithfulness as obeying the Lord's commands, living according to God's ways and not our own. And because of his faithful walk with God, Noah was spared, along with his wife, his three children and their wives, and the animals that the Lord brought upon the ark in order to save them. We left off last week with God shutting Noah and his entourage in the ark and the rain pouring down for 40 days until the peaks of the highest mountains were covered and all life on the earth was wiped out. The final sentences of chapter 7 read, Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So it rained for 40, and then he floated there with the earth flooded for another 150 days. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine the state of mind Noah must have been after nearly 200 days in this catastrophic situation. Hold up in this dark and dingy container with the smell and constant noise of animals. Competing with the drumming of the rain and the crashing of enormous swells against the side of this ark as it's battered about. And then there were the feelings and questions that he had to contend with from his wife and children that surely he didn't have many answers for. Are we there yet? When will this be over? What will happen when it is? What kind of future are we going to have? And let's not forget to mention Noah's own thoughts and feelings that he had to wrestle with. The sorrow over neighbors and relatives that he surely cared for that perished in that rising water. What a nightmare this whole situation is. I'm certain that Noah had plenty of occasions during those days on board the ark where he struggled with doubts, wondering if this would ever come to an end. Would the waters ever recede or had God forgotten him? Though not confined to an ark, many of us can relate to those same struggles and doubts. We also find ourselves in chaotic situations with more questions than answers, struggling with our faith. Does God see me? Does God care? Or has he forgotten me also? But that's why this story is so important for you and me. And that's why it's such good news for Noah and for all of creation. You see, it tells us that we can trust God will remember. Genesis 8 begins in verse 1. God remembered Noah. And not only did he remember Noah, it says he remembered all the wild animals and livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. 
Cherie Hayes and Dr. Ben Turton of the Bible Project put together this diagram that shows how the flood account is symmetrically arranged. And they explain this phrase, but God remembers. It anchors the entire story from the center of its design. God's remembrance is the hinge point of the entire story, shifting the narrative from cosmic chaos to new creation life. He remembers is in the middle of the story. When God remembers, we can't look at that phrase and think somehow he had forgotten. Like somehow Noah and those animals, they they slipped his mind and something jolted his memory, right? When God remembers, it signifies him delivering on his promises. It's talking about him acting upon a previous commitment that he had made to a covenant partner. I'll say that again. He is acting upon a previous commitment he has made to a covenant partner. Back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, we see that Noah is God's covenant partner. When the Lord says to him, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. Now, a covenant is the most solemn promise that one could make. It's a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to one another and work towards a common goal And they're often, these covenants are often accompanied by signs and oaths or even various ceremonies. The closest thing that you and I have to a covenant in our society is marriage, which, like a covenant with God, is supposed to be a relational commitment for life. So when my wife Andrea and I got married, we made solemn promises to one another to love and support one another for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, for sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. We committed ourselves to being faithful to each other and devoted to each other while working together on common goals, like building a life together, raising our children together, till death parted us. But tragically, marriage is a covenant that is far too often broken in our world because people fail to live up to their commitments We humans, we break our promises to one another. But God is a faithful covenant partner. And throughout the Bible, he enters into partnerships with humans despite our lack of fidelity. He continues to hold up his end of the partnership. We saw throughout Noah's obedience in building the ark that God could count on Noah to do as he commanded. But here in Genesis 8, Noah must be wondering to himself, can I count on God? Can I count on him to be faithful to the covenant? Will God remember me? But what even is the covenant promise that God established with Noah back in Genesis chapter 6? Later on in chapter 9, we see God make a covenant with all the humans, Noah and his sons and his, their wives, and all the creatures on the earth, promising never again to destroy all life on the earth with a flood. This covenant is represented by the rainbow. But that's a different covenant than the one we see in chapter 6. 
We're not told in Genesis 6 the terms of the covenant God makes with Noah there that he remembers here in chapter 8 that causes him to send the wind to recede the waters. However, the words he says in chapter 6 in Hebrew when he says, I will establish my covenant with you, the Hebrew words my covenant, make it clear that this is not a new covenant. Rather, this is a pre-existing promise of God's a vow that the Lord has previously made to humanity that he is now freely passing to Noah. That covenant was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. After the serpent that led the humans to rebel, God promised that one day that serpent would be crushed by one of the woman's offspring. Now, if God had wiped out every single human being from the on the face of the earth with the flood, then he would not have been able to keep that original promise. Only by preserving a descendant of Adam and Eve would God be able to fulfill his word that one day he would completely defeat evil and restore humanity through their offspring and return his world to the harmonious state that he desires. When God sends his wind over the earth in Genesis chapter 8, and the waters begin to recede. Not only does he show that all the chaos and storms in this world are subject to him and his will, and that nothing is out of his control, he gives hope that even after so much death and destruction, new life is possible. But specifically for Noah... I think those retreating waters would have begun to soothe the anxiety and fear and the doubts that he was feeling. It would have shown Noah that God is a faithful covenant partner that he can trust. God remembers. All told, Noah spent over a year on that ark until finally in Genesis 8.15, God commands him and his family to come out of the ark along with all of the creatures. In chapter 9, God then commissions Noah's family with the same command he gave the first human family. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. However, this isn't a complete reset back to the garden. Things are not perfect, right? the way that they were before Adam and Eve sinned. Sin still infects the world and threatens humanity's relationship with each other, their creator, with themselves, and the creation. We see the reality of this brokenness in God's warning and institution of capital punishment for anyone or anything that would take the life of another human being. God says in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. See, these verses not only remind you and I how valuable Every human life is because we are made in God's image. And so this gives us innate value. Each human being has great worth. But this verse also shows us God anticipates humanity will continue to rebel. And it doesn't take long before the rebellion kicks off. 
After such a promising start in this story and being so faithful and building the ark, we see Noah stumble in verse 21, right? It tells us that he got drunk off some wine that he had made and he lay uncovered in his tent. Then, verses 22 and 23, they describe a scene with Noah's sons where the youngest, Ham, enters his father's tent, sees Noah is naked, and then he goes out and he tells his brothers about this. But when the other two hear about this, they go out of their way in order to avoid seeing their dad's nakedness and to cover him up. Now, whatever is actually going on in this little episode here and the sin that's actually being described, it's anybody's guess. Theologians and commentators, they love to speculate, but we only have a vague description to go on here. What we know is, whatever the offense was, it was serious enough to result in such an angry response from Noah that he curses his son. But we get some hints from earlier parts of the story. Again, back in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that nakedness has to do with shame. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they felt no shame. However, after they rebelled, they covered up. They hid. They hid from themselves, from each other, and they hid from God. Whatever else happens here in Genesis chapter 9, whether Ham literally or figuratively looked upon his father's nakedness, whatever else he did, he dishonors his father whom he should have respected, and he continues to dishonor Noah by telling other people about it. While on the other hand, Shem and Japheth, they show their integrity by refusing to look upon Noah's nakedness, and they honor him, showing him incredible grace by covering up his shame so that he no longer has to hide. He does not have to be embarrassed. Does that remind you of anything? It should. That's just like how God made coverings for Adam and Eve after they had sinned. And he made them from animal skins so they no longer felt like they had to hide from each other or from him as well. So the same mercy God shows Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, Shem and Japheth, they give to their father here in Genesis chapter 9. In fact, there are so many similarities between the creation and fall account, Genesis chapters 1 to 3, with the flood narrative, Genesis 6 to 9, that there is no way this could be a coincidence. So let's take a look at some of these parallels. In Genesis 1, the world is formless and void. In Genesis 7, after the rainwaters come upon the earth, Darkness also covers the surface of the deep. In the beginning, God's spirit, his ruach, hovered over the waters. In Genesis 8, the Lord sends out his wind, his ruach, right, over the earth. As the waters separate in the very beginning and dry ground appears, producing vegetation and birds ruling the sky, when the floodwaters recede, Land in the form of mountaintops appear, and birds come forth from the ark, and what do they bring back but some vegetation in the form of an olive shoot? 
After God made all of the creatures and humans in the beginning, he blesses them. He says to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And then when they come out of the ark, the Lord gives the same blessing to the humans and the animals. Be fruitful, increase upon the earth. In Genesis 3, Eve's sin is equated with a tree. And Genesis 9, Noah gets drunk off the vineyards. His failure also corresponds with vegetation. As a result of their sin, Adam, Eve, and Noah all experience shame in relation to being naked. And all three of them experience grace when others clothe them. And finally, both stories end with the pronouncement and curses. God tells Adam and Eve how their actions have cursed them. And here, Noah, he curses his son, Ham. Maybe you're looking at these similarities and saying, what does this all mean? What does this tell us? I think it shows us how the Bible is a unified story that continues throughout all of its pages to develop the theme of humanity's rejection of God, but his faithfulness to that original covenant. To one day eradicate evil and to restore his kingdom rule to this world by continuing to partner with people, partnering with broken, sinful people, broken and sinful, yet who are still trying to walk faithfully like Noah. He wants to partner with people like you and me. You know, if God flooded this earth every time humanity's sinfulness got out of hand, I tell you, water would be spilling out into outer space right now. In Genesis 3, or in Romans 3, it says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But fortunately, like Noah, you and I do not have to fear that God will abandon us or forget about us, even though we have sinned, even though evil pervades our world today. And the, as the pages of the Bible continue to unfold, we see that even when God's partner people are not faithful to live up to our end of the covenant, He remains faithful. Even if we abandon God, he promises never to leave us or forsake us. And even if we forget him, even if we forget his ways, the Bible says that we can trust. God will remember. He will remember the promises that he has made to us. Just as Genesis 3 ended with a pronouncement of curses, but also the hope of restoration, we find the same thing happening here in Genesis 9. There are curses, but there's also hope. In verse 25, Noah condemns his son Ham by cursing Canaan. Uh, Canaan are Ham's descendants, the Canaanites, and they turn out to be some of Israel's worst enemies. The Canaanites... And the relatives are the Egyptians who enslaved the Jews for 400 years, the Babylonians who exiled them, and the Assyrian neighbors who were wickedly violent and who led them astray to worshiping false idols. But remember that this is Noah cursing Canaan. This is not God cursing the people of Canaan. There are other verses in the Bible where God speaks of how one day even these worst of enemy nations, they also will worship him and they will also know his loving kindness. 
But in the last part of Noah's proclamation, we get a glimpse of hope as Noah praises God, specifically the God of Shem. Now, if we were to open our Bibles to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, we find a long genealogy. I'm not a big fan of genealogies. That's why I bring guest speakers to come in and speak on them when they come up in the passages. My wife loves genealogy, though. But in that genealogy, we see um, that Shem, who is the son of Noah, who is the descendant of Adam, is a part of the family line of Jesus, the Son of God. Do you see how God has such a long memory? He's not forgotten that promise he made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to crush evil and to restore his kingdom through a descendant of the woman. And then if we're to go back a few pages in chapter, uh, to chapter 1 of Luke, we discover this old high priest, his name is Zechariah, who's told that his elderly barren wife will conceive a child and that this child will prepare the way for the Lord. This child will help usher in God's kingdom through Jesus. You know what Zechariah's name means? His name means God remembered. And upon the birth of his son, which was a sign of God's faithfulness, Zechariah breaks out into prophecy. He breaks out into this song and he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant to remember his holy covenant, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. There's that word again. Before him all of our days. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3 to crush evil, which is what he did when he died on the cross. Through his death, Christ paid the debt for our sins, the penalty for our disloyalty and rebellion from God. And by Christ's resurrection and through putting our trust in him, we can have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate sign that God hasn't forgotten us. We can trust, trust in him and trust that God will remember us. See, Noah was in that boat for a very long time. And some of you have, may be, have been in a dark or chaotic place for quite a while. Far longer than you would like. First of all, let me say, I'm sorry. And if there's anything that we as a church can do to help you, let us know. But most of all, I think we would like to pray for you. Whether you want to come up here after the service and ask me to pray with you or some of our friends who are prayer partners up here to pray for you or maybe you want to email uh, Pastor Dave Barker to put it out for our prayer team through email or even you have those little 
cards in the pews in front of you that have prayer requests, and you can put them in the box that's in the middle of the foyer after the service. We want to pray. You can even ask our elders to come and pray for you and anoint you with oil. You see, we pray because we believe that God hears us, that he sees us, and that he is a God who remembers and rescues us. And so we want to pray together. But even while we endure trouble and hardship, God continues to look for people who will partner with him, just like Noah did. Cherie Hayes from the Bible Project writes again, God is a loving creator and healer who does not forget or abandon us. Instead, he remembers. While this, apparently, this all apparently takes a long time, God continues moving us from decreation into recreation. And he is inviting us to participate with him, to become like him as co-rememberers who do not corrupt or harm, but instead bless and heal. Human beings who join God's recreating work of blessing and restoring life. It's beautiful. What an invitation we have to partner with God in something so wonderful. Now, there are a few ways that this story shows us how we can partner with God and become co-rememberers. First of all, like Noah, we need to continue to walk with God and prioritize those four relationships God wants us to reconcile with him, with others, with the creation, and with the creator. And please, friends, let us not be neglecting the creation. As some Christians and some churches tend to dismiss that. If this story demonstrates anything to us, it's that God cares deeply about his creation and humans as well. The covenant that God makes at the end of chapter 9 that is signified by the rainbow, if you read it, it's not just with humans that he makes that covenant, but God says it's with all life on earth. He cares for us all. Like Noah, we need to walk faithfully with God by refusing to conform to this world, by remaining obedient to him. But when we get it wrong, and we do get it wrong, let's be quick to repent, to turn back to God, to receive his forgiveness with joy and humility. And unlike Noah, let's show mercy and forgiveness to those who do wrong to us. And finally, just as God remembers us, I believe that he wants us to be a people who remember him and remember his gracious deeds. Remembering helps us to stay faithful and avoid temptation by rebelling and going our own way. Maybe that's why church life feels so repetitious. Anybody else notice that? Notice how we sometimes, these same emphases are repeated over and over and over again. And sometimes we're tempted to, you know, complain about that a little, about this repetition in the Bible or the sermon. That guy mentions those four relationships constantly, right? Or the repetition in the church calendar. But maybe before we complain, we should pause and consider to ourselves, Is there a reason why everything is repeated so often? I think it's because 
we're a forgetful people. God doesn't need the rainbow as a reminder for himself not to flood the earth again. But you and I, we certainly need reminders to remain faithful to him. And boy, howdy, does God provide us with reminders in the Bible. Throughout scripture, we see all the ways that God calls his people constantly to remember him and what he's done for them. He gives us Sabbath. He gives us various feasts. He gives us even communion and baptism are things given to us as ways to remember his kindness towards us in order to provoke faithfulness from us. Finally, in the Hebrew prayer known as the Shema, which Jesus sums up, he says, this encapsulates faithfulness to God by loving him. It goes on to instruct God's people how they can remember him faithfully. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And I want to pray the Shema over us this morning. Hear God's people. Hear, O Calvary, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you drive down Como Lake or Austin Avenue, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust you to remember us. God, help us to remember you. Amen.